Hello from the MIT Legal Forum on AI and Blockchain here at MIT's Media Lab in Cambridge, Massachusetts. I'm Jonathan Askin. I'm a professor at Brooklyn Law School. I'm Shauna Hoffman. And I'm Brian Kuhn. And we're on the road with Legal Talk Network. And we're back. Shauna, Brian, who are you folks? Where are you from? We are from Watson Legal. Uh, well, that's uh, an interesting word, Watson Legal. Yes. To some members of the audience, I hate to tell you this, Watson Legal may be a dirty word. Really? Yeah. So you came on the scene and scared the <laughs> crap out of so many people in my profession. I, I've been an attorney for a couple decades. Okay. Practicing law, now teaching law. And we've been hearing for years the rumbling that AI is going to completely replace lawyers as a profession. I'd like a little commentary on that. Do we have to worry about our jobs uh, two, five, 10, 20 years down the line? I think it depends on your practice area. So for those who are the best of the best lawyers, absolutely not. We will always need the profession. But, you know, Brian, I'll let you go ahead and comment on that. I think that we get asked this question a tremendous amount. Uh, for high volume practice areas, mm -hmm. such as insurance defense, you can expect more augmentation. But it's pure speculation to suggest that uh, it would be pure speculation of, of, our, of us to suggest that there's going to be some kind of massive wholesale replacement. So uh, my sense is that a lot of young lawyers coming to the profession, perhaps not the old line lawyers uh, already in the profession, uh, my sense is that we start to recognize that AI will do those tasks which the lawyer never really wanted to do in the first place. What I'm imagining, I'm training a whole new generation of lawyers who now have the sweet luxury of going into a profession where they do not have to do the mind-numbing tasks that I had to do when I came out of law school. When I came out of law school, I spent two years at a big law firm, never deploying the skills I thought I was going to deploy while I was learning the subtle art of lawyering. Yeah. I feel like you've created an opportunity for us where we can do that subtle, sophisticated, nuanced thinking that the computer can't do. It's my hope mm -hmm. that law will be one of the last areas that are ever disrupted by artificial intelligence because we do precisely that that the computer cannot do. The computer is wonderful at separating ones and zeros, black and white, yes and no. You're going to do that uh, you know, a trillion times a second. And then we're going to get to step in and provide the analysis, the work in those gray areas. That the, is that a fair analysis? I don't think so, respectfully. So cognitive deals with ambiguity. Cognitive computing deals with ambiguity. It's probabilistic, as opposed to traditional computers which are deterministic. Traditional computers, traditional analytics, do indeed deal with ones and zeros. What cognitive tools do, among other things, is that they understand language in the context of a practice area, for example, in the context of your client and your historical experience with that specific client in that client's specific industry. And so they're able then to understand all the various ways that similar concepts can be conveyed to understand what you mean by what you say in the context of the scenario at hand. That's gray. That's parsing the gray. So it does sound like you're saying that as AI develops its real chops, as AI is able to really parse through data and do significant, sophisticated machine learning and natural language processing, it may encroach upon the skills that I imagine are the skills best left to those trained in the subtle art of legal reasoning. 
Yeah. Well, and I, I think that one of the, well, a good example that we have is we have a corporate client who had paralegals reviewing invoices. The paralegals did not want to be reviewing the invoices, nor did the attorneys want to review them. Now, Watson, our artificial intelligence from IBM, can review those invoices and give that first pass review so that can automatically show what anomalies maybe those invoices have, maybe some of the violations to bill codes, et cetera, that very quickly can be brought to that paralegal and attorney's attention to be able to then respond uh, to the law firm to make those corrections. So, you know, I would say that artificial intelligence, especially with Watson, is something that the attorneys, instead of running from, should run towards. Because those things that you hate to do every day, you know, very easily Watson can do and, and allow you to actually practice law. So Shauna is giving me a comforting message. Brian is giving me a somewhat less comforting message. <laughs> no, I, well, maybe. That's up to you. I would say that when it comes to taking a deposition or defending a deposition, when it comes to counseling a client uh, on a course of action, even if that client doesn't agree with you and won't do what you suggest, those are skills that involve emotional intelligence. When it comes to analyzing massive amounts of information and reading increasingly, meaningfully, like a human being, broadly across different areas, that enhances client service. Mm -hmm. And that's what, if we look at what law firms' clients want, what they want is client service. They want more efficient, you know, but also more effective, more consistent. Mm -hmm client service. So are you suggesting that among the more important skills for a young attorney coming into the profession or going to law school would be a very high emotion, uh, a very high EQ as opposed to I a would. particularly high IQ? Okay. Do you think there will come a time when the AI, when Watson will develop the ability to have a recognizable EQ? I could tell you my personal opinion, uh -huh. um, but, uh, but it's not grounded upon anything that IBM is doing. I think yes. But the degree to, it, it's pure speculation. It's pure speculation. It requires the Turing test or the Blade Runner. It uh, probably test, does. Right? Yeah, well, it yeah. only makes sense. But is it now? Is it 10 years from now? We don't know. Do you think there will come a time when an AI prosecutor or an AI courtroom attorney could defeat a competent or highly skilled human attorney? There's something, there's an element here, though, that we're not asking or question here, a line of questioning that we're not asking, I would again respectfully submit, which is, should it? Can it? Probably yes. Can a vendor build incredibly sophisticated and fascinating tools? And are they incented to do so? Yes. Uh, but should they? That's where we need the legal profession to step up, frankly, and inform us of what we must and mustn't, should and should not build. Unless we know, unless there's a, a framework for the ethical and practical application of these technologies, then we won't be, we won't have a North Star. Yeah. Well, and one of the other things to mention though is we have to remember that judges are human beings. And so no matter what artificial intelligence we create, it's not a Watson judge or an artificial intelligence judge. And so you still have we'll say the biases of the judges, we still have those things that will never go away because it is a human judge. Now the human judge could be augmented with artificial intelligence, which I think would be a fabulous idea. But at this point, we are still looking at humans and artificial intelligence going into the courtroom together. So Shauna, you don't necessarily see a time when we will have an AI judge at any level being the sole determiner of you know, justice. It depends on the country. Now, one of the things that Brian and I saw in the news last week was in China. 
China has robot attorneys, from what the article was saying, standing at the front of each of the courthouses. The citizens can go and ask the robot judge questions and then get a response back as to whether it's a valid, you know, a valid case, possible case. And then the robot, uh, the robot actually provides them with other attorneys to go to, to then, you know, continue so on with that case. So that's sort of pre-vetting by an AI Yes. Counsel. So that's a good start. Okay. Um, you know, I think that instead of everyone being scared of artificial intelligence, it's embracing it and seeing how you can use it to augment those things that you need help with day to day. You know, we look at the judges and the scheduling is out of control mm -hmm. in most of the courtrooms. And so artificial intelligence is a, a great way to help the judges then manage their calendars. So we've got a pretty extreme, uh, if I could be a little bit political about this, we've got a little divergence between those who have access to justice and those who have lesser access to mm -hmm. justice. Yes. Now you're talking about things like AI augmentation, uh, AI-enabled lawyers, AI-enabled judges. Does that decrease or increase our potential for a broader disparity in access to justice. Those who can now afford AI assistance, do they have even more of a leg up against those that don't? I think that AI is going to become table stakes for governments, for businesses, that it will become ubiquitous eventually because the benefit will be so profound. Mm -hmm. When it comes to access to justice, imagine this. Imagine a cartridge that's trained to reason like the lawyer who trains that cartridge. So it's not just ingesting data, it's providing the framework of the way that that attorney thinks about things in relation to that data. Now, you could take that cartridge and you could unplug it from its source and you could plug it in somewhere else and it would analyze that data as if by the lawyer who trained the cartridge. Now think about lawyers using pro bono hours to train cartridges in the law of domestic violence, and then someone explaining their scenario, just as you and I are speaking now, or any num other number of, uh, of access to justice use cases, and at least getting some initial guidance. Uh, it doesn't have to be perfect. Good shouldn't be the enemy perfect, right. but some initial guidance. So is there a scenario, I think uh, now, of Asimov's through laws of robots? Is there a scenario in which either a bar association or a government entity could say, well, here is the rule for the lawyer AI, for Watson Legal. You can't kill a person would be Asimov's, but yours is you cannot promote a position that is not fact justified. Is there a way to create some rule in the robotics, in the AI algorithm, that will allow for uh, less disparity and justice? Maybe this is a potential answer to bridge that divide where one lawyer has access to more facts and a better facility to deploy those facts if the AI can in fact bridge the facts and the law and come up with some uh, better balance between the parties. That's fascinating. Yeah, um, we're, I mean, we are out speaking with many of the judiciaries, government entities, and having those discussions. Because right now we do have a bit of the Wild West that many of us who are in leadership positions are trying to figure out how to control. So when I first started chatting with you folks just a few minutes ago, I was scared to death about the prospect of AI. I really, I, you know, everyone says AI is going to destroy everyone's jobs. I was at least hopeful to some extent that among the last professions that would be disrupted by AI would be the legal profession, even after medicine, because lawyers still work in those gray areas. My thinking now is, in, in hearing Sean and Brian talk, that there are potentially phenomenal opportunities yes. for young lawyers who want to jump into this uh, realm. Suppose that you 
and as an example that we often give, suppose that you represent Acme Corporation, you have for 10 years. Acme hires many lawyers, many law firms, they hire you for a particular kind of expertise. So you represent Acme and you hold on to the work product that you've created for them over that past 10 years. Can you use a cognitive tool to analyze that previous work product in the context of Acme's current needs mm -hmm. and suppose that Acme's needs are repeatable to produce a more cost-consistent, outcome-consistent result in the context of Acme specifically. Mm -hmm. So operationalizing my historical relationship with my client and really elevating client service in a way that hasn't been possible before. That's augmentation, not replacement. What about, so at sort of maybe low level mediation or arbitration levels, is there a point at which parties could contract away their rights to a human intervener? Would that make sense? That might make a lot of economic sense. You can contract and say, I will submit ourselves to a Watson legal arbitrator. It will cost us a lot less, we'll get quick resolution, we'll get consistent resolution. Is that an area in which you folks are exploring opportunity? I don't Not. think that we're there yet. No, I don't we, think that we're there yet. Well, yeah. I may have some young Maybe. law grads who would be very interested in coming in to work on Watson yeah. legal arbitration and legal mediation. I think that's a very uh, good idea. No, I think, I mean, we're, again, we're still at the beginning of artificial intelligence. Mm -hmm. We're at the beginning of blockchain. You know, we are at the beginning of the fourth industrial revolution you know, the cognitive revolution. So there is a long way to go. And we have to just remember, we have to, we have to go in the shallow end first instead of jumping in deep. Do you do anything at the law school level, sort of classroom simulations? I should tell you, I'm working on a project to make Brooklyn Law School a bastion for VR and AI activity. So the thought is, can we build an AI engine that will allow for training, so test taking, a scenario in which we have a courtroom simulation where an AI can, through machine learning and language natural processing, the student could be speaking and Watson would trigger uh, objections. Uh, uh, someone would be speaking, uh, maybe in a evidence scenario. You hear a voice saying X, Y, and Z, and the student lawyer would have to say, I object. The Watson judge would say, on what grounds do you object, counselor? and the student would have to say, I object because of you know, mm -hmm. relevancy or something. And the AI judge would say, uh, sustained or overruled. Have you explored any of those opportunities? We have not yet, but again, we have, we have just started. We've just begun. And we're yeah. focused on the business of law, and we have a number okay. of business of law use cases. They are also more easily received mm -hmm. than practice of law use cases. They also have a better ROI, and we can explain why for our clients. Okay. like reducing outside counsel spend by hundreds of millions of dollars for one client and additional clients as well. Good. Uh, Can I, I want to give you a, a, a legal use case that my students and I have been exploring. Please. We got a grant from something called the Legal Technology Laboratory. The Kaufman Foundation has given us a little bit of seed money to try to use rudimentary machine learning and artificial intelligence, natural language processing, to allow students to help build an algorithm that would allow companies, large and small, to call through their structured and unstructured data to figure out if and when they might be running afoul of Europe's new privacy laws, which are going to be implemented on May 25th, the GDPR. Yes. Is that an avenue that Watson Legal has been exploring, is interested we, in exploring? Yes, we have Absolutely. Watson Contracts Advisor that works around the framework um, of GDPR and assisting to move the needle to make sure that all of the regulations are complied with. That's something that we would love to talk with you about. 
Well, that sounds wonderful. So here, yeah. here's our issue. Our issue is I could see people building a nice enterprise model to sell to law firms and to sell to Fortune 500 yeah. companies. My students and I represent unfunded bootstrap startups. Mm -hmm. What I would love to see is some way for there to be equal access. So we've got a lot of small startups who are, might be working out mm -hmm. of a, uh, an apartment in Brooklyn, mm -hmm. uh, but have a global footprint and know they want to have clients and customers in the EU. Can they have equal access to a artificial intelligence system that would help them determine when they have potential GDPR issues? That's the world I'd love to see. I'd love to see across the spectrum of uh, there, size. If the data, wow. if the, if the yeah. data is available uh, based upon different countries' data privacy laws, their unique data privacy laws, let alone GDPR, if the data is available, and the data is identified as being relevant to that particular initiative, available, accessible, relevant, I don't see why not. I don't see why not. And if most of it's unstructured. Yes. Well, I would love to pursue that conversation yeah, with you that's all. That's exciting. A couple final thoughts. So let's say, are, neither of you are attorneys. I am. Oh, you're an attorney, okay. Did you practice law? I did. Before, at a big firm? Uh, at a, at a medium-sized okay. firm, yes. So here's what, then I want you to go back in time to when, uh, let's say you're coming out of law school now. What advice would you give to a young lawyer who saw the AI revolution and wanted to play a vital, empowered, thought leadership role in this revolution? I would suggest going to law school and then taking an additional year with a school that offered something like that to learn how to be a solutions architect for legal someone who could understand the connections between multiple systems, but also design systems from scratch. Take them up, take them down as needed with the same platform as a foundation, as needed functionality, custom built based upon their understanding as subject matter experts around the business needs, the practice needs of their employer rather than the technology needs. I love that. Oh, so I should tell you, uh, my students, my graduates, and I started something called the Legal Hackers Movement. It's the largest community of- You started that? Yeah, it's wow. the largest community of tech lawyers. And yeah, we did yeah, the first yeah. ever Legal Hackathon. I bring it up because when we started the Legal Hackathon Movement, our objective was essentially to train lawyers to be project managers. Uh, exactly. Uh, so, but you're saying something, you're taking it to the next level. I never actually architects. thought about them as solutions architects. Yeah. To me, that is the next iteration. I would say maybe there is a role for law students, law graduates to serve the function of a project manager on a united project with technologists, web designers, marketers, business people. Because I think of us as smart generalists, at least my graduates, if not I. But this new role of solutions architect sounds like a fascinating uh, cross-disciplinary field for young graduates looking to make a mark. And there is a need for it. Okay. Yeah, well, and then it makes it, he's a triple thread at IBM. Mm. Ryan can do so many of the positions. It's nice to have if him I'm in a, a room. I'm a triple threat. Uh, <laughs> you want up me with quadruple. <laughs> uh, I don't know about that. Uh, well, Thank you. This has been enlightening for me. It was a roller coaster for me, I got to tell you. I started out fearful, I got optimistic, I got fearful, I got optimistic again. So I think that's a sign of uh, very interesting times. And just listening to the two of you talk in there mutually scared the crap out of me and made me see potential opportunity around every corner. So I love you for that. Thank you. Personally, I like what you're doing for society. And now I think I like what you're maybe doing for the next generation of lawyers coming of age in an AI-enabled world. Well, and thank you for what you're doing with the hackathons. Yeah. We are big fans of the legal hackathons. Uh, enough mutual congratulations. Yes. Uh, uh, before we close it out for today, I have one last question for the both of you. If our listeners would like to follow up, how can they reach you? So we do have a Twitter uh, that you can follow us on, and it's 
Cognitive Legal, C-O-G-N-I-T-I-V-E-L-E-G-A-L. And if uh, they don't find you, I suspect uh, Watson Legal will find them? Watson Legal may. That's okay. funny. <laughs> you, well, and you can also reach us on LinkedIn. I'm Shauna Hoffman and... Brian Kuhn. Yep. Yes. Terrific. Thanks, folks. Thanks, Shauna. Thanks, Thank Brian. you for your time. We reached the end of the road for today's episode. I want to thank you both. I want to thank Watson Legal. It would have been interesting if we could have Watson Legal speak for itself at a future uh, uh, Legal Tech Network talk. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, legal Talk Network. Uh, uh, in any case, uh, we also want to thank our listeners for tuning in. Um, if you like what you heard today, please rate us on Apple Podcasts. We'll see you next time for another episode of On the Road with Legal Talk Network. If you'd like more information about what you've heard today, please visit LegalTalkNetwork.com. Subscribe via iTunes and RSS. Find us on Twitter and Facebook. Or download our free Legal Talk Network app in Google Play and iTunes. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. Thank you.